Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torrenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global. We are here today with two very exciting guests, Felix Fang, CEO, founder of SET, and Nadav Hollander, CEO, founder of Dharma. Guys, welcome to the illustrious Village Global podcast. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's start with some introductions. Nadav, why don't you talk a little bit about what Dharma is and what problem you're trying to solve? Sure, yeah. And just, uh, again, thank you so much for having us on this. So Dharma is a protocol for borrowing and lending on blockchains. And the ba- basically the problem that we're trying to solve is that kind of for as long as blockchains have been in kind of the public mainstream consciousness, there's been this idea of like, let's quote unquote, bank the unbanked, which is kind of like code for saying like, let's just build financial services that are, you know, fundamentally globally accessible, that are more transparent, are more fair, affordable, etc. And that hasn't really happened yet. But our thesis is that we have a strong conviction that it will one day. And that kind of a necessary prerequisite to that world that's kind of upstream of it is basically like a robust decentralized market for credit. And so basically that's what we're trying to build. We're, we're building an infrastructure layer essentially that sits on top of the Ethereum blockchain that enables any two parties in the world to kind of engage into a peer-to-peer loan that is entirely administered by a smart contract and we've created a sort of ecosystem of what we call relayers, which are basically basically applications that connect borrowers with prospective lenders, or rather applications that connect prospective borrowers with lenders. And this kind of enables this so-called decentralized credit market to, to right. come to fruition. And let's zoom out even more on a more macro level for, for a second. The title of this episode is going to be a primer on the you know, open financial system or topography of the open financial system. If you want to get more fancy, I'm curious, where did that vision come from for you? And how did Dharma come about as an idea to best manifest, best, you know, bring that about? Totally. So, so I used to be an engineer at Coinbase and I really heavily drank the Coinbase Kool-Aid in terms of literally their mission is uh, to build an open financial system for the world. And I'm I'm just joking around, but I I really do actually think that I was heavily influenced by having worked there Brian and Fred kind of really spelled out a really vivid vision of what it means to kind of have more economic freedom in the world and to have financial services exist that have the same sort of global accessibility as the internet in general. I think one of the most striking examples that I like to give people is that like, you know, anybody in the world can go onto Wikipedia, let's just say, and ingest some content and knowledge. And, you know, obviously asterisk on anyone, there's, you know, despotic countries and where people are censored, et cetera. But in theory, anybody in the world can go and ingest content from anywhere around the world on YouTube or what have you. But you never really saw that sort of thing happen with financial services. It's not like somebody who is in Karnataka, India can go onto LendingClub.com and take out a loan on there because our financial system, for all intents and purposes, is heavily, heavily coupled to the banking system, which is highly localized. And so I think the the vision of an open financial system is is a world in which the same sort of like global accessibility and ease of use that we're that we're kind of accustomed to with web 2.0 products gets applied 
to financial services so that anybody in the world can just go and take out a loan online or invest in like a basket of financial products or what have you. Right. And how, how did your, did you right away have the idea for Dharma or how did that idea emerge as you said, Hey, this is the, this is the approach I want to take. Yeah. So I've always, I pretty much as soon as I got into Bitcoin, I was always interested in the idea of like loans in Bitcoin. And there were some primordial examples of peer to peer lending platforms built with Bitcoin kind of in like 2013, 14. Most of them kind of like crashed and burned horribly because of just, you know, like massive rampant fraud and things like that. But I thought it was always a really interesting concept because you don't really see cross-border peer-to-peer lending that often because there's just like a lot of just like challenges around like how do you deal with the legality of loans that span jurisdictions with um, kind of like crossing the barriers of different banking systems, et cetera. And so what it started off as basically was like, you know, this is like 2016 or so. And at this time, um, the augurs of the world were doing ICOs and there was like kind of this really exciting zeitgeist in the Ethereum community around like build X, but decentralized. And so at that time I was like, wow, it would be awesome to build like lending club, but no lending club in the middle. That was the kernel of an idea. And that has evolved considerably since then, because turns out that it's really hard to create a peer-to-peer lending platform where there's no one doing anything in the middle to, you know, vouch for borrowers or, or collect on loans or things like that. But that was sort of the kernel of an idea that I used to apply to, to Y Combinator that I used to kind of build the, the initial version of this platform. And it's, it's kind of been a really exciting journey since then. And say more, how, how has that idea evolved and what is it today? So yeah, basically like I think the, the core insight that we had was that building an application ourselves for like, like the core insight was that like, most likely consumer lending use cases are not going to be the things we're going to see happen first on, on the blockchain, so to speak. Most people in America are relatively well served by, by the credit markets. And most people in the world who are not relatively well served by the global credit markets, i.e., you know, like the 2 billion un, unbanked or underbanked, aren't necessarily literate enough, at least at this point in time, with things like cryptocurrencies. So the insight was kind of like, well, it seems like there's there's a lot of really interesting use cases for, for borrowing and lending crypto assets that are very native to the actual cryptocurrency ecosystem. The most kind of uh, prominent ones have to do with speculation. So it's people trying to like short tokens or, you know, leverage their crypto assets in some capacity. Um, but there's a lot of other really interesting ones around, like, for instance, like staking, which is this, for those who don't know, staking is a core part of how many of the next gen blockchains and protocols are, are secured. It basically involves putting up a bunch of money into like a like smart contract that will penalize you and take some of your money if you act in like a malfeasant way. The problem with staking right now is that it requires like huge sums of capital. And there's this really interesting concept for basically creating like staking bonds and creating a, a way in which smaller constituents can kind of lend, pull their money together or lend it to some bigger entity that will stake on their behalf. So, you know, I'm, I'm flagging that as a, as an example of like, that's, that's meant to highlight that what we kind of realize is that like, there are use cases that are relevant today that are native to the cryptocurrency ecosystem where essentially people are, are like, you know, need crypto assets. They're looking to borrow crypto assets and not necessarily dollars by proxy of crypto assets. 
and and these use cases are so diverse and so so like kind of like multivariate that we basically thought it would actually kind of make more sense to build a kind of generic infrastructure layer that um, that lets people build these applications and bring them to market, but taps into kind of a unified credit market so that you have so that there's kind of a, a unified network of borrowers and lenders that are all exchanging with one another, but where like the actual end user of that credit can be originated and kind of interacted with by a different application. So to kind of sum it up, basically, the, the model that we landed on was like, instead of us trying each one of these like paths to sort of crypto lending adoption in serial order, we could instead build this, this sort of protocol and instead have other people build applications on top of it so that we're trying basically all paths at once. Totally. That's a good, uh, we'll, get, we'll get back to that. Felix, why don't you introduce SET and what problem you guys set out, set out to solve, no pun intended, and how the idea emerged. Yeah, so so I'm Felix. I'm the founder and CEO of something called Set Labs Inc. We're building something called Set Protocol, which is a specification for abstract token, right? Or uh, a token that represents a number of other tokens. The first use case that we thought that made a lot of sense was essentially kind of using these abstractions to basket like tokens for the purpose of investment, right? So something like a decentralized index fund or ETF. So how we came with the idea was, you know, back in 2017, and so we saw an explosion of ICOs and new tokens getting generated. It seemed like, you know, with the passing day, you know, there was dozen, multi-dozen ICOs that were emerging. And for many users, they found it really difficult to be able to get access or invest into these tokenized products. Oftentimes, they would have to do research on these kind of projects themselves, do the diligence, participate, uh, you know, do KYC on each individual ICO, and actually, you know, retrieve the tokens, right? And then, in addition to that, they'd have to manage these tokens themselves. So, and if you weren't a user that was participating in ICO, getting access to these tokens is actually a very painful process. Let's say that you wanted to get exposure to the top 10 tokens. What you'd have to do is actually, you know, sign up for various exchanges, mostly centralized exchanges. You'd have to do KYC, AML on each of the exchanges. You'd go to the exchange. You'd kind of find a token that you want and then, you know, click the buy button. And just for audience, can you explain what KYC, AML is? Oh, yeah. So KYC and AML, uh, KYC stands for Know Your Customer. AML stands for Anti-Money Laundering. They're essentially, you know, if you're a registered kind of exchange, you'd have to provide this information to governments to, to remain compliant. And so these users would have to purchase these tokens from exchanges, kind of get them deposited in their wallet. And once they have these tokens, sorry, they would have to actually withdraw these tokens into their personal wallet to actually kind of have self-custody of these tokens. So that's a number of steps that you have to take to purchase each token. So we thought, okay, like, would it would be a lot easier for the end user if they can just go to some sort of venue, uh, whether a decentralized exchange or a centralized exchange, purchase one token and get exposure to a basket of other tokens. So that was kind of the initial use case of set but there are a number of other use cases much more broader than just for investment products kind of like an index fund or an etf Nadav, how do you see sort of like how do your projects intersect or sort of when you think about the open finance system how do you see dharma and set playing a role into and what, what are sort of broader applications you're excited about and what set is building is is like super lucid in that like you know, SET is creating this this mechanism for for bundling different tokens up. And if you look at the way the financial system operates, massive amounts of value are bundled up 
like every single day on Wall Street. And very often those bundles are cons- are composed of loans. And, uh, you know, quite notoriously um, in the run up to the financial crisis, you know, these 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 bundles of loans that, that became known as, as CDOs became, you know, super toxic. And the whole system itself was extremely over leveraged. It was in, in a really kind of uh, uh, in a risky state. And it wasn't it wasn't extremely easy for the average layperson or even like a fairly sophisticated Wall Street quant to be able to to tell that that was the case because there were kind of several levels of opaqueness that shielded uh, you know a financial analyst let's just say from the underlying assets of a multi billion dollar CDO and lo and behold what that led to was the you know the worst recession we've seen since the the Great Depression. And so the reason why I'm really excited about uh, projects like SET and how they could interact with Dharma is that, like, it's not it's not that bundling together debts inherently in and of themselves is like a is a bad thing to do. It's actually a really clever financial construct that allows you to kind of manipulate the risk profile of an asset, and it brings a lot more liquidity into the system, etc. I would argue that a lot of the problems that you saw in the run up to the financial crisis had a lot more to do with transparency. And the fact that it was just so damn hard to understand what was going on in these esoteric instruments. Now, the beauty of using something like SET to, to bundle up, you know, Dharma debt agreements, essentially, is that A, you know, just from a transactional perspective, you're just saving so much money that gets basically like thrown into the hands of lawyers in the financial system that goes into just like administering these things, right? It's like somebody's got to sit there and make sure that like, when the repayments are made on all these underlying mortgages that they then like flow to X tranche holder and that then Y tranche holder gets paid at the next seniority waterfall, et cetera. All that stuff is like managed by humans and it's often mismanaged by humans, which leads to like massive amounts of lawsuits and litigation and just like general kerfuffle. And so what's really exciting is when you have something like set is that like all of this stuff happens automatically. All this stuff gets administered by smart contracts. So so just alone on that, like you you just save tremendous amounts of capital um, and really just like tremendous amounts of like human misery um, from administering these things. But more importantly, I think, is the transparency aspect of it. It's that, you know, unlike the kind of opaque several hundred page legal prospectuses that that defined the CDOs that led up to the 2008 crash like a token set essentially is it's just a smart contract right like anybody can write like a like a easy like a simple little python script that looks over all the CDOs that are on chain and like can flag the ones that are over levered and they can go off and write some snarky blog post on medium and blast it out to the financial community right um and that's something that wasn't possible in the past and so i think that this this, this applies more broadly to the sorts of financial instruments that can be built on blockchains. And, and I think we'll, we'll make financial markets more systemically secure, but also more liquid and user-friendly. You know, we talk about, we're talking about open financial system here. Satoshi himself, herself, themselves in 2009 or whatever, you know, in the white paper, you know, wrote Bitcoin white paper in the wake of the financial crisis. Right. So I'm curious how you think about what Satoshi's vision was and how you guys have, have built on top of it or, or branched from it. 
Wow, Satoshi's vision. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, first of all, I'll caveat by saying Satoshi's vision is highly interpretable by by the by the reader. Like any um, good Bible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It really is. Yeah, it really, really is. So you know, like I, I, I will solidly say I'm, I don't belong to like the Bitcoin maximalist crowd, so I, I probably have a different interpretation than than most who 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 would. Then, anyways, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you read the Bitcoin white paper, there's literally like sections in it that say um, that list like payments as a use case, like and and specifically kind of refer to like chargebacks being this like huge issue where it's like, you know, if you spend your credit card, like every business on the Internet nowadays, like has some sort of fraud department department that has to deal with chargebacks where essentially like people buy stolen credit cards, they like buy something online, they receive their goods or services or what have you. And then like, you know, like two weeks later, they like cancel the payment or rather the person whose credit card was stolen, like cancels the payment. And that happens like all the time, like a hundred billion dollars are lost every year on fraud and chargebacks. Um, And like, that doesn't even like count in like the massive, like just like, workplace departments that have to like manage these things and you know i i I know this personally because i worked on the team at coinbase that basically like oversaw like the the fraud pipeline there and it's it's a nightmare like it's totally crazy and bitcoin like was posited as this like really elegant solution to that it's like you have these irreversible payments like once you have six confirmations on a bitcoin transaction like it's there it's in your pocket and that's like a really beautiful concept and i think that like the I wouldn't say that necessarily like the Bitcoin white paper alludes to quote unquote the open financial system so so like directly, but I think if you look at a lot of the people that were the early Bitcoin evangelists, particularly um, uh, a guy named Balaji Srinivasan comes to mind here, they they were really really big on this idea of like programmable money being this like incredible primitive that'll create just things that we've never really seen before and that we can't really imagine. And I think that my interpretation of what like programmable money is best used for is for financial services. But I think this is a story that's unfolding one, you know, one page at a time. So we'll see. Totally. I'm curious, question for both of you. How is this going to be felt by the layman or the average person? Like, how are my friends in Detroit or family in New Jersey going to be using SET, be using Dharma in their day-to-day life? I think that like ideally, I mean, it's really hard to see, to say like how things are going to look in the next like few years or so. I think with most technology, you know, it's usually kind of adopted by, you know, the innovators initially and then kind of the initial kind of like minority. I think that initially we'll find that a number of applications are used by pretty technologically savvy kind of folks. I think that, you know, it'll take a while before the user experience gets good enough so that, you know, a user kind of, you know, for example, in, in somewhere in San Francisco who is not as tech savvy like your mom, or like my mom or so, can go on. I'm not saying anything about your mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no. <laughs> my mom has <laughs> a treasure and, uh, sophisticated, yeah. and is running a Monero node. <laughs> right, right. Like that said, like the, the primary, like we probably want the user experience to be kind of, as like seamless as something as like you know purchasing something on like a robin hood right or if like sending money like sending through like kind of like a venmo like experience where you can like pull up your friend put in the amount that you want to send and then click a button right i think that we're pretty far from that at the moment i think that there are a number of like kind of user experience challenges there's a number of technological challenges as well as regulatory 
challenges before you before we get there. I think in terms of user experience, like there are a number of things that that you know uh, that are, are quite challenging for the end user. Like if, especially if they want to transact on open protocols such as like a Dharma, a Set, or like a Zero X. Right? There are a number of concepts they have to like uh, pick up. Like you know some of the basics, their table stakes are you know for example they have to be able to manage and and store a private key right so like securely right and when you have a private key and you send a transaction it's irreversible right so there's nobody that can call or email to kind of like to, to to save you if you for example you sent money to the wrong person right so i think there are a number of solutions that are exciting that are coming out to solve these type of things uh, there's a project called casa there's a number of kind of like hybrid solutions that are that are partly kind of self-custody, partly centralized custody. So that's kind of on the, on the, on the wallet side. There's a number of new concepts they have to learn. For example, if you're on Ethereum, you have to understand the concept of gas, you know, that, you know, when you actually send a transaction. And that's something that most people actually don't know too much about. Uh, there was a funny type of picture that came out recently in which, you know, the 30 steps you have to take to, you know, start, get started with CryptoKitties. And it was, <laughs> and, it, and on the bottom, there was kind of a little form, input form for, you know, for kind of a blank, for any type of question. What was in there was like, what is gas, right? So it's actually a pretty, you know, to, uh, it's a concept that we, you know, as people in crypto, we understand, but most people uh, don't have a conception of. In addition, like on top of that, if you want to, for example, transact on a zero X protocol, you have to understand something called like WEATH or which is like wrapped ether. So uh, even for me, like I, I didn't understand why I had to, you know, like wrap my ether into something called a wrapped ether they'd have to understand you know that you know to use a smart contract and for something to comply with erc20 they'd have to you know wrap their ether into erc20 compliant uh, type of thing how about you what do you think these you know what's, what's gonna have a change for this to be much more accessible to wider audience oh my gosh yeah i mean just to, to highlight and kind of play and you know add to what to what felix said I think really the biggest challenge is UX. Like, it, I mean, like mine is just scalability at large. It's just like a whole thorny issue of its own. But like, presumably, if we solve scalability issues, the next big like kind of fruit to pick off the tree is like UX. And well, some people even say putting aside scalability, we don't yet have products that enough people want to use. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's honestly that too, right? It's like it's not like it's not like the Ethereum network is like collapsing under the weight of like you know Facebook level transactions volumes. Like that's not happening yet, right? And so I think there's like there's kind of two ways that this future pans out, right? In terms of like like end user experience for interacting with like crypto protocols. Either we're gonna end up in a world in which like the world that like the cypherpunks want, so to speak, where like everybody holds their own private key, right? And like we have awesome self-custody solutions. And like tangibly what that probably would look like is that there's like either like phones will have built in hardware wallets and there's, you know, all sorts of people that are, you know, in theory working on this right now, or like everybody's going to have a little dongle on their keys. That's like their private key or like God knows what other solution I'm not even thinking about. And if that's the case, then like the way a transaction would look for like an end user, you know, let's just say in 10 years, would be like you you pull up to your computer you go onto a website you don't need to log on because like or, or rather i'll take a step back you go to your computer you open some sort of website or financial service let's just say you're trying to buy a token set and your log on so to speak will be like plugging in your hardware token or like you know scanning your phone on some nft thing and then it's going to detect your private key and it'll like effectively like log you on because that's like your username and password baked into one 
And then, you know, like, ideally everything from there should be, like, pretty straightforward. You just, like, press a button, and then you buy your token set, and then, like, it's in your wallet, and it's great. And now, now something that's, like, a little bit less rosy than that from, like, the kind of cypherpunk vision that's honestly probably more likely, unfortunately, is that we'll have, like, a lot more coin bases in the world. And that it's, like, basically, like, people are going to custody your keys for you. People are going to, like, deal with, like... All the craziness of like you know sending transactions. People want convenience over privacy, right? The yeah, same, I mean, at the like end Facebook. of the day, right? Like, um, there's this guy John Backus who who is one of the founders of Bloom, and he he wrote this awesome post about like how there's just like such a long history of people thinking that decentralization and like privacy are the things that are going to matter so much and users just not giving a shit and like and just like going for like the minimally viable solution that gets them what they want most like primarily we saw that in like file sharing but i think it's 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 feasible to imagine that like people will not want to custody their own keys because it's kind of a bitch and like and it's hard to do and um i mean will they make it effortless in the future like will these essential applications become like as easy or just Maybe. I mean, maybe like, right. Like that's, that would be amazing. Like, so, so I I think what I would, what I would say is that there's two alternating visions here. Either one is like the so-called web three vision, the DAP vision where everybody custodies their own keys. The fundamental paradigm of interacting with the internet like totally changes. And now every time you're like interacting with an application, kind of like plug your wallet into the computer and the UX is just like perfect. Maybe that's how it pans out. And that'd be awesome. I would prefer to see that future. But another possible future is where, like, essentially all of these protocols are extremely abstracted away and are very much sitting in the back end. And the businesses that you interact with, like the Coinbase's of the world or something, are the ones that are talking to those protocols. And those are open protocols, so it's easier to start a business on them. So you still get a lot of the benefits of having kind of open decentralized protocols. But users get to, you know, log in with their username and password. And it doesn't feel like this kind of, like, totally different paradigm. It's interesting. Let, let's double down here for a second. My my friend Tony Shang from Decentraland, uh, sometimes co-host of this podcast, wrote this great blog post called Crypto Anarchy versus Crypto Incrementalism. And I'm curious if you could, you, you mentioned the cyberpunk. Some of our audience might be unfamiliar with that concept. I'll learn a little bit of the, the history of, 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 of that concept and group and how that relates to you know crypto and how we think about building products. Yeah, totally. Oh, man. So... There's this kind of like um, like beautiful vision that many of the the sort of crypto anarchists of the world paint of like how like the future like the future world of technology will work, where essentially like your identity and your wallet are like held entirely by you. They are they are self sovereign. And in order to kind of crystallize this idea, like think about it this way: if you most people think like, yeah, I own my money. What are you talking about? It's sitting in my bank account. But imagine just as a thought experiment that like a nuclear bomb were to drop on, you know, the United States and you were abroad at the time and the entire banking system were to collapse. Your dollars would effectively be gone, essentially, right? Like your your dollars weren't actually stored with you. They were stored at some sort of bank. They were just obligations that the bank had to you. And like as much as this is like, you know, this seems kind of like a silly thought experiment, but it's happened many, many times in history where people's savings have essentially just evaporated because the the banks that uh, essentially like were that had some sort of obligation to those savers didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And so the, the cypherpunk vision, so to speak, is this idea of like everybody will be their own bank. Everybody will kind of have 
a private key that stores all of their funds in the form of cryptocurrency. Every time they transact with somebody on the internet in any capacity, it will be quote unquote trustless. Like it will be mediated by smart contracts. There won't be any sort of like counterparty risk in the transaction. And you won't have sensitivity to like global shocks and like meltdowns of the financial yeah, and, system. And division originated with the web, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's actually like very old, right? This this whole notion, there's, there's lots of really, it's fascinating reading like, there's a book called The Sovereign Individual that's very popular in crypto circles. It's quite, it's almost like a trope at this point, but it's, it's kind of incredible the stuff that they write in there. And this is, this is written in like early internet times, basically. And it's just like, it, it, it just outlines such a fundamentally different vision for how the web could have like panned out if we, if we kind of prioritize in our value system things like decentralization or even just having like native money on the internet. But long story short, so that's like the crypto anarchist version of the future. Now, that has like not necessarily been the direction we've been marching in. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, what we see nowadays is that regulation is starting to step in. Government officials are actually quite like, un- like understanding and excited about blockchain technology for the most part, at the very least in America. And the, and, and, you know, the most popular cryptocurrency app right now in the world, which is Coinbase, is an entirely centralized custodial solution, right? And so it's it still totally remains to be seen whether we figure out how to create this sort of crypto anarchist future and also whether that's even desirable. One of my favorite things about crypto is that how it turns everybody on to topics like law, uh, fi- yeah. finance, uh, you know, technology if, if you're in Wall Street. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, I saw this, uh, this visualization I'm going to pull up, you know, Bitcoin is what, hundred some? What is Bitcoin? What's the total valuation of Bitcoin right now? No, Market, uh, few something billion. Yeah. All all of the blockchains are what, three hundred? Sure. Something yeah, like that. Sure. What's global debt? Yeah. <laughs> Seventy trillion. Yeah, it's, I think it's more around like two hundred and ten trillion or so. Uh, <laughs> derivatives, five hundred forty-four trillion. I mean. The high end estimate for the value of all derivative contracts is as high as 1.2 quadrillion. I didn't yeah. even know that was the number after trillion. How do you guys think about sort of the intersection of you know crypto finance and normal finance and traditional finance and where crypto is gonna what that bridge is gonna look like over time? I think personally because so many more things are gonna be tokenized on a blockchain that the opportunity for crypto finance is actually much larger than that in the U.S. I think that the the numbers that you cited I'm not sure were they global or U.S. numbers. Cool. Oh, global numbers. I think that because so many more assets, uh, so many more things that, you know, are such as like personal uh, real estate, et cetera, can be securitized and traded globally. I think the opportunity is much larger. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's I'll echo everything that Felix said, honestly. I mean, it's just like all of a sudden you're there are so many new categories of like assets, essentially, that are going to be created by blockchains. And it's going to be weird things, right? It's going to be like video game items and like virtual reality land plots and like reputation and like all these, all this kind of like crazy stuff that we've never really like traded in the real world because like, I don't know, we just like, it it just didn't even like fit the paradigm in any capacity. Um, Draw it out a little bit. Like what will reputation look like, for example? Reputation is a tough one, actually, because I actually think there's there's complexity around whether you'll, you should be able to trade reputation like in, you know, but that's. Like that's, that, that's, that's another point. I think, I think a better, a better example that I heard 
I want to credit the right person who gave me this example. I I think it was Juan Bennett from, from protocol labs. He talks about things as like as simple as like your place in line, right? Like, like your place in line for like a wait list or something could be like traded. And like, obviously it doesn't seem feasible for that to be the case. If you're like, you know, waiting outside for like the latest Yeezys or something to like, have that be like your place in line be tokenized. But if you imagine something like your place in line for an immigration visa, as being like tokenized in some capacity. I don't mean to make any sort of like moral assertions as to whether or not that actually makes sense and whether that'd be a good thing or not. But it's an interesting example of like being like, wow, like if it, if the cost of issuing an asset like goes to zero, like what happens when like everything is traded, right? Like when we talk about quote unquote, everything being traded, that's just like the base layer, right? Like that's just like the assets themselves. Things get really interesting when you start looking at like the derivatives and the loans and the kind of like like structured products that are built on top of that. Because that's just like like as we've seen in kind of the traditional financial system, those are just orders of magnitude larger in terms of their their market cap. You paint more of a picture in terms of derivatives, for example, or like and maybe do it with CryptoKitties or maybe do it with some other examples yeah, you're most excited yeah, about. Totally. Oh man, okay, you can get you can think of some crazy stuff here, right? Yeah, I mean, so you can imagine that you could have like, you're in a virtual reality, right? And you have created some sort of like digital piece of art. And it's like hanging in some sort of digital museum. And you're earning like a certain number of tokens every week as like royalties from people visiting the the museum. You can now tokenize your that revenue stream and borrow against it so you could like put it up as collateral borrow against it and then use it to like i don't know like pay off your mortgage in the real world <laughs> so it's you get, you get all these crazy sci-fi sort of things that you can come up with and and probably like you know like like th- i can imagine that if we'll look back on this podcast in 20 years like i can only assume it's not going to age well because i think that probably the the real examples of what these things are going to be are going to be even weirder than that and like we just have no conception of what the hell that's even going to look like i don't think blockchain tech is going to like dramatically revolutionize the way that traditional assets are traded per se I think that it's going to create entirely new asset classes that are going to be tremendously more valuable and will look almost nothing like what we've seen in the traditional world. And what are the winners of that? Besides, of course, you know, protocols like that and Dharma. <laughs> like, what are the new institutions that are going to be built? Banks or other sort of like specialized institutions that come up and sort of dominate that spaces. And if we have like, I don't know, virtual land plots or um, meme traders or like, I don't yeah. know, is there going to be like a JP Morgan and meme trader. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, it's unclear. It's, I mean, that's, that's kind of the core question of, of honestly, like value capture in this space in general. This is actually something me and Felix were actually having lunch earlier today. And we, we were talking about this. Um, yeah. I mean, like we were just, you know, it's totally unclear where the value capture points are going to be in this new infrastructure that's being built. If at all, there are any, right. I mean, like if at the end of the day, you're trying to build infrastructure to decentralize things, then like, you know, you could make an argument that like there shouldn't be any sort of value capture point because if there is a value capture point, that's a point that should be decentralized. Now, obviously, you know, both of us are building businesses right now in this space. So clearly we have some sort of conviction that there is value to be captured. But what's kind of interesting is that like in theory, like the only thing I could say is that like if there are going to be monoliths that like emerge from this in some capacity, they're going to have to capitalize on like some sort of like irredeemably scarce resource that can't be like traded or commoditized. 
And I think that it's likely that that resource will be trust, right? Uh, like the, the earliest winner that we've seen in the crypto space has been Coinbase and they pretty much just won because they're like, or are winning arguably because actually uh, speaking of things that might age badly, I hope, yeah, <laughs> I, from this point in history, it looks like they're winning. You know, they, they've, they've been winning so far because they won the trust game. They're the most trusted brand. Like, um, and Bitcoin is the most trusted cryptocurrency at the time, given right. like how long it's been around for. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I know that's like a hand wavy answer. It's like hard to predict that much in the future. So, so I don't know. <laughs> okay. What applications are you guys most excited for people to build on top of set and in Dharma respectively? For set, like we're excited to, I guess, like as Nadav kind of mentioned earlier, like we have our own concept of in version two of our protocol, something called issuance orders. So essentially, like if a user like didn't have all of the components of the set themselves, they can kind of, they can kind of outsource, you know, the, the, the components from various exchanges and someone submitting an order. So uh, to kind of fill uh, the rest of the components. So we have a, like we are imagining that people can build, you know, set real layers on top of what we're doing. People can build decentralized brokerages on top of set. They can build other products such as robo advisors or decentralized portfolio management tools. That's kind of a, a short list of some of the things we're kind of conceptualizing initially. And how do you think about other players in sort of adjacent spaces like uh, Bitwise or some of these other players? Yeah, so I guess with the centralized players such as Bitwise, they're uh, very different from what we're doing. They're focused on targeting institutional investors and getting them access to crypto, kind of creating their own like top 10 type of fund. For us, we are focused on kind of the the centralized version of that. We'd hope that, you know, users are going to be able to self custody this that is completely open, that not, uh, that anyone can participate in investing in these products and rebalancing is done in a trustless manner versus a centralized entity kind of performing the the the, the update totally you know, how about you at dharma where are you most excited for people to build applications on yeah i mean so the I, i'd bucket that into two categories one is kind of like the short-term stuff that like you know we just we need to see built in in the dharma ecosystem and this is like pretty vanilla it's basically we have, we have this these two kind of con- concepts in the Dharma ecosystem. One is known as relayers and one is known as uh, underwriters. Relayers, as I mentioned previously, are basically applications that match borrowers and lenders for a fee. And underwriters are kind of like what it sounds like. It's basically entities that judge borrower credit risk in some capacity and, and service a loan throughout its life cycle. So basically, like we're just looking to like we we have, as to our knowledge, there are there are two different relayers that are live on mainnet right now. And there are some underwriters in the pipeline, but none, none have actually launched yet. Um, what do those under- underwriters look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, like what we, I mean, it's it's an open question as to like what it will actually pan out as. But I, what we imagine it as is that an underwriter would, it, it's basically like a storefront for a loan uh, online, right? It's like you basically, you go to carloans.com or something like that. More likely something more esoteric, right? Like, you know, I, I want a loan for my mining rig. And so it's basically like they are the ones who advertise to you. They're the ones that are like the face to you. They're the ones you interact with. And there are tons of businesses that do this nowadays, right? Like there's, there's a whole crop of alt lending companies that got started after 2008 that basically were like, Hey, let's build web 2.0 storefronts for, for loans. And they all have kind of the same spiel. It's, it's, you know, you, you go on there, they somehow have some sort of proprietary algorithm to judge your credit risk. And then assuming you pass, you get a loan from them. The argument that we would make as to why that's a business that could be done in a much more capital efficient manner on Dharma 
is that you don't have to source any of the capital yourself. It's essentially kind of like unbundling that business from, you know, capital origination in it's essentially like unbundling that business into its components of capital origination and underwriting credit risk. So that all you have to do is just judge borrowers, kind of uh, provide some sort of attestation of their credit worthiness, and then forward it off to the Dharma network to have that loan be filled. So the longer term use cases that I think are really exciting is, is kind of what happens if you if this market gets built out, like if we actually succeed and there are lots of underwriters and there are lots of relayers. One concept in particular that I'm really excited about that's you know particularly sci-fi is this notion of an autonomous bank. And essentially the idea is that you can have a smart contract that basically acts as like a savings account for any user that deposits like a crypto asset in it. And the idea is that like I could like, the smart contract has kind of like some programmed rules as to like what sorts of debts it will invest in. And anybody can go up to the smart contract and basically be like, hey, I'm underwriter X. I have found this awesome borrower. Please let me have, you know, a certain portion of your capital. Like engage in a Dharma debt agreement with me. And so there, you know, if, if that, you know, I'm giving a very naive kind of simplistic version of that. But if, if that concept can be fleshed out correctly, then you can, I mean, the possibilities are like crazy to imagine. It's basically like banks that like don't have anybody administering, like, you know, banks that like don't have branches and don't have people in suits that have to like have super expensive compliance departments and marketing budgets and things like that. It's just like code that actually manages this autonomously. So that's, that's a particular concept that I'm excited about. Heavy caveat being like, this is probably pretty far away. <laughs> this isn't something I'd expect to see anytime in the near future built on top of Dharma. What um, what happens to the lending clubs of the world? How are they going to engage with this, if if at all? Or like, are they always going to exist? Like, how does this how does this influence them? I think I think it could be I think it'd be I think what we're building could be very advantageous to companies like Lending Club to to integrate into their tech stacks. Insofar as there's a couple direct benefits to them. Number one, it drastically reduces the amount of overhead that's required to like service and administer a loan. Because pretty much like you, you reduce your entire business model from being like, I have to have this massive, massive kind of capital origination front of talking to all these credit funds all the time to basically just like all I do is judge credit risk. So I would argue that there's, there's, there's a huge amount of benefit to them. The, the second, the second kind of clear advantage in my mind is that the loans are tokenized, meaning that they kind of natively plug into this emerging infrastructure for trading anything, right? And so, you know, Lending Club has, for instance, or at least had at some point in time, a kind of proprietary secondary market where you could go and trade loans, but it was like proprietary to Lending Club, right? Like you couldn't go and take your loan from Lending Club and then go to like one of the Chinese peer-to-peer like lending platforms or something like that and trade those like in the same unified platform. Um, and the beauty of crypto assets is that they're they're standardized and they're really easy to like plug into whatever infrastructure exists out there. So as, as much as it'd be fun for me to be like, rah, 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 we're going to take down the lending clubs of the world, I actually think that our infrastructure has a lot that could make their lives easier. It's interesting. I think you know one of the things we were talking about this weekend, Felix, at the uh, Token Daily Retreat was this concept of attention versus AUM versus assets under management and things like you know, Andreessen Horowitz, Polychain, venture capital getting a lot of attention, even though it's it's like peanuts relative to credit markets, debt markets, yeah. derivatives, literally utter peanuts. And yet we don't know, a lot of the audience will be unfamiliar with places like Two Sigma or Jane Street right. or other institutions like that. So I'm curious, how have you guys, when you guys have 
interfaced with traditional finance institutions and players. How have they viewed Set and Dharma, and how has that surprised or or excited you? I think that like talking to a couple of financial institutions, it seems a bit early for them. Even like adopting kind of very kind of the largest cryptocurrencies such as like Bitcoin or Ethereum. I think uh, from our from what we've kind of learned, like there are a number of hurdles that that they need to jump over before they start getting interested. But you know, a number of and elaborate just a couple of those hurdles. Right. So uh, one of them is uh, you know trusted custodian solutions. Too many of financial institutions, a Coinbase, a custody is like not enough. They need you know someone respectable someone with a brand to kind of back and, and, and I guess like kind of hold their cryptocurrencies on their behalf. I think part of it is also regulatory as well, uh, getting more uh, clarity from, I guess, the governing bodies on like what they can and cannot do. Cool. Yeah. So there's, I think we've had a lot of conversations with traditional financial institutions at this point. I would say that they are all very intellectually excited about this uh, from like an academic perspective. And some have even ventured so far as to be like, oh, what if we tried to build X with this or something like that? And, and you know, I, I don't want to like speak condescendingly because there are some particular financial institutions that have adopted very progressive mindsets towards this and are kind of very meaningfully trying to deploy resources towards building cool things on, on top of decentralized protocols. So, so don't take this statement as categorical. But I'd say that for the most part, it, it kind of it's, it's exactly what Felix said, right? Like they're not really actually ready for this stuff yet. Like when you actually get down to like the nuts and bolts of it, like they, they don't have the ability to like custody their own private keys at this point in time. They don't necessarily have like the technical expertise and know how to actually like meaningfully like interact with these these decentralized protocols. And mind you, this is a no fault of their own. Like this is just like this is a highly esoteric skill set that like, you know, we all have tons of trouble hiring people for. So, so I think it's just, it's just too early for most financial institutions to like get their foot in the door on this sort of stuff right now. Yeah. I want to give you a chance to talk more about applications at top of Dharma, whether it's tokenized municipal bonds, decentralized margin lending or others that you, that you want to see exist or are already seeing exist. Yeah, definitely. So the, I'd say the, the majority of use cases we're more focused on at the moment are, are probably like secured lending in some capacity. Secured meaning like there is some sort of digital asset that's being held as collateral in the transaction. Uh, and the reason why this is important is that like lo and behold, lending money to the people like strangers on the internet is like kind of dangerous if you don't have some sort of means of recourse if they don't pay back. So uh, particular use cases that we're, we're kind of excited about are that we'd love to see built on Dharma are what we call collateralized collectibles. Um, so what does that mean? Essentially, it's this notion of like, there are all these really exciting, there's this whole new world of like, like crypto collectibles that are, that are kind of exploding now. And it's actually, it's exploded like so fast, like faster than I even expected. Like I think OpenSea, which is a platform, it's a marketplace for actually trading these things. I think they have like something like a hundred thousand different types of like crypto, like so I, I may be misquoting that figure, but it's somewhere along that order. And it's like incredible, like the amount, the diversity of these different assets that have, have been created because it's just so easy. All you have to do is just press a button and 
like create like an avatar and you have a crypto asset. And so I, so, so first of all, like I'm really just bullish on this notion of like what crypto collectibles can mean in general for the future, especially when you start getting like real brands involved and they start seeing the value in this sort of stuff. And especially when you start like integrating it into the gaming world. And real brands like Pokemon or like IP like that, or what do you mean? Oh man. Okay. So, so I think I'll give you a super lucid example. So this is a bit of an aside. This is, this is a bit of a pitch for crypto collectibles in general. And I'll, I will segue it into a pitch of, of what we think could be built with Dharma on top of that. So, so I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the game Fortnite that's like exploded in popularity. They had this really cool model where they essentially just like, you know, they give it away for free, but you, you pay a certain amount to buy certain digital goods basically. And these are like literally like a bunny costume or like, you know, like a astronaut costume thing, but they're raking in like some ridiculous amount of money that you can go Google and af- Google after this. Cause I'm going to misquote it, but you could imagine like, you know, if, if you, what if you could take your little, you know, astronaut costume that you earned after many hours of like play and, you know, is highly regarded in the Fortnite world and you took that and you could like take it and use it in Halo or you could use it, uh, Decentraland or you could use it in some other random gaming environment or you could even put it on your resume, you know, and you could put it there in like kind of like a provable way. And that's where you get this kind of like crazy idea of like, what would happen if the monetary value of the assets that you either earn or purchase in within a game wasn't like kind of segregated to that game's environment and you could actually take it with you elsewhere and you could actually, you know, sell it outside of the world of this actual game. And it, it gets really interesting because there's like there's an online game called Eve Online that kind of notoriously had this it was, it was one of the so-called like MMORPGs, right? Where essentially like people would just take these giant spaceships and kind of like battle them out in these like, you know, extravagant, crazy, like super technical battles. And uh, similarly in EVE Online, there was kind of this notion of like there being like valuable goods within the game. And in one battle in particular, something like, you know, there's there's this like epic showdown between these two teams and something like $30 million dollars or $3 million, I forgot the exact figure, but some insane amount of value was like destroyed in like in that one game. And this is just one game. And so I think that it's a really exciting concept to be like, what happens when you actually insert like liquid monetary incentives into gaming in general? Um, especially when you look at the growth of gaming and how massive it is, it is worldwide and how there are already people watching like Star Trek games in stadiums in Korea, right? Like, so, so... All of this is a really long-winded way to, of saying that like, I think crypto collectibles have a really big future. And one particular use case for Dharma that we think is, is really exciting is that crypto collectibles aren't necessarily useful by themselves, but they are valuable. And so one thing we want to see people build is essentially loans that are collateralized by crypto goods. So you can imagine you know, the canonical use case that we like to joke about is you know, you'll put your crypto kitty up for collateral and you'll borrow against it. But, you know, if you extrapolate a little bit further into the future, what can that look like, right? That can look like I wanted to go buy this extremely valuable trading card on this website and I paid for it in installments and where that loan was secured by that actual card itself or what have you. And so I think that that is a use case that is particularly well suited to what we're building because all aspects of it, the collateral, the principal, the the origination of it, all of it is happening via crypto. Um, and so there's no dependencies on the quote unquote meat world. And so that's one use case that we're particularly excited about. Awesome. Felix, what's a, what sort of a crazy out there 
use case or application of of set that you could envision in the future? Yeah, I think like I'm not as good as like painting pictures as like Nadav is, <laughs> but you know some of the near term use cases that we're incredibly excited about include you know like kind of. The, the concept of like token abstraction. So imagine in the future, if you uh, have a, uh, you know, a decentralized application, which needs to use two tokens, imagine that you want to, let's say you have a data set and you want to run that data set kind of in a machine learning algorithm and then store it in a decentralized manner, let's say using like a store J as your protocol, right? So what you would input into kind of the smart contract ideally would be kind of like one token that, you know, would algorithm automatically be kind of split up into two and used in their respective protocols, right? So that's kind of a, a near-ish term use case. Uh, in the more further term use case, you can imagine like when real world kind of items get like tokenized, services get tokenized, uh, you can essentially, you know, go to uh, when you kind of uh, get employed by employer, you get a job, instead of getting like health insurance, you would get a token that represents a number of services that you can you can kind of unbundle and then, you know, and, and, and use, right? So you go to the dentist, you pay them in dentist coin. You go to a doctor, you pay them doctor coin. You just, you have perfect vision. So you decide you don't need to go to optometrist. What you could do is kind of sell that excess token to someone else. And I think that's pretty, that's something that's a little bit out there, but I think it's pretty exciting. You know, as we think about the open financial system, I'm curious what other projects, if you look at the whole landscape, what other projects in space uh, are you excited about? Yeah, I think I think the the real kind of trailblazers in this quote unquote open financial kind of protocol world that's emerging is probably the zero X team. I think they really created. They were the first people that like proved that you can actually build a protocol on top of a blockchain, like a meta protocol almost, and have other people build viable businesses on top of those. And so, so definitely a big shout out goes out to to Will and Amir and team uh, on what they did and are continuing to do. Other teams that I'm particularly excited about are probably DYDX. Um, they're building a protocol for derivatives. You know, we spoke earlier about how massive the market cap for, de- for derivatives is in the real world. Um, and so if they succeed in what they're trying to do, that'll be a really, really big deal. I think that the there's a lot of protocols that are working on essentially adding a KYC layer to blockchains. And this is you know highly antithetical to the, the crypto anarchist future that we were talking about previously. But it's actually really important if you want to like get a lot of institutional capital into these markets because like the real big players here who like are swinging around like huge amounts of capital, they're not going to touch these things until there's some guarantee of compliance. And it's really hard to provide that guarantee of compliance in the current infrastructure stack if you don't have some sort of standardized solution for KYC AML. So the people at the forefront of this are probably Harbor. Um, there's another uh, protocol that I'm a fan of that's that's called Abacus Protocol, and there's just a whole bunch bunch of folks working on this stuff, and it's it's really crucial infrastructure. Yeah, I echo Nadav. I think that you know the the teams that he mentioned they're they're quite stellar. Uh, you know, props again to uh, kind of Amir and and Will at Zero X. Like we're we're good friends with kind of Antonio and DYDX as well. And our uh, our investor is also an investor in Harbor too. So uh, super excited about those teams. I think some. I mean, there are a number of categories that are emerging in this space. I think that some that are interesting are you know the stablecoin space. I think that you no, know, there's a, a number of projects including kind of Basis Carbon. 
Uh, there's a maker team. I think that the experimentation there is going to be is, is, is uh, we would hope would be quite fruitful. I think that you know there's some protocols kind of in the decentralized insurance space. There's one that's emerging. I think they're not public yet, so I'm not won't mention it. But essentially, they're enabling kind of credit default swaps uh, kind of on the blockchain. I think that's incredibly exciting. You know, and think one of the first use cases that they're tackling is essentially insurance. Like, Ensuring against centralized exchange hacks, right, which is quite prevalent kind of in the crypto space. We've seen you know, originally with kind of Mt. Gox and a number of other breaches recently. Yeah. Guys, last question. For entrepreneurs out there, engineers out there who are, you know, entranced by this, by this, by this vision, open financial system and are looking for opportunities, looking for the right idea. Where do you want to see builders innovating? Like, where, where do you want to see more innovation where there is just a little bit right now? Or where do you see sort of white space? As you, if we just outline this world that you think, wow, someone needs to tackle this. So biased answer, first and foremost, you know, there's this cool protocol called Dharma, uh, and there it's kind of an open green field in terms of the businesses that can be built on top of it. We have already created kind of the tools and infrastructure that can pretty much get you started within like a day and get you up and running and starting to earn fees as a relayer in the Dharma network. And you don't need to know Solidity. You don't need to know how blockchains work. You only need to know JavaScript. So quick plug on that front. But um, outside of that, I think there needs to be more wallets. There needs to be way more wallets, like more competition in the wallet space. Because right now, like there is like the UX of interacting with a decentralized application is, as we mentioned several times, like horrible. And there is like, there, there just hasn't really been anybody that's like cracked it well. Um, and to give kind of like some statistics here, like, like MetaMask is arguably one of the most successful applications in like the entire cryptocurrency space. And they have like a very minimalist UI. They've been like very, you know, kind of security focused and, and focused on being an open source project. And that's like wonderful, but they haven't like really leaned into like the kind of like, you know, let's revolutionize the UX of this. Let's build a mobile app, etc. I think there's just so much room for people to to build compelling wallets that make it easier for people to use decentralized applications. And I think that there are really clear value capture models around that. It's it's it seems to me like the most obvious thing that's like a huge low hanging fruit in the industry. Yeah, I, I agree with Nadav. Like, we definitely need more kind of uh, more thought and more talent, kind of building wallets and UX for folks. I think another way to kind of reframe like what needs to get built is like if you kind of you know did a did a map of like all the financial services in the traditional kind of finance industry, and you like looked at kind of what exists in the kind of the crypto or decentralized fi- or open finance industry, you can kind of like just look and see like what's what hasn't been built yet. Like literally, I can't name like. Like any off the top of my head at the moment, but I think that would be a, a good exercise to kind of begin that process if you want to start something that was completely new. <clears throat> On that note, any last plugs or where can people find more about respective projects online and follow follow along? Sure. So uh, you can go to our website, dharma.io, spelled D-H-A-R-M-A dot I-O and learn a lot more about our protocol and about how to kind of build things on top of it. You know, as, as cliche as it sounds, we have a telegram channel that is where our community lives. You can come hang out with us and meet us and we're really easy to reach. Uh, so feel free to DM me or anything. If you have any questions or um, if you want to meet in person ever, um, we'd love to get to know you and get to know what you're interested in building. 
<laughs> we're set up quite similarly like, yeah, like dharma yeah. we also have a website it's not called dharma.io but it's <laughs> setprotocol.com we also have a uh, a twitter uh, which you can kind of see our progress we have a blog where we're we're, we're, we're updating uh, you know folks on kind of what we're doing and you know join us also on our telegram <laughs> maybe someday we should just combine all of our telegrams we into the centralized finance yeah, one. Exactly, right? <laughs> guys this has been a fantastic podcast thank you so much for coming on absolutely thank you absolutely. Eric. thank you